Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo, and today's guest is Deirdre O'Neill, a working class lecturer and filmmaker. Her latest book, Film as a Radical Pedagogic Tool, explores the way in which radical pedagogy of film grounded in the experiences, class location, and everyday realities of the working class can provide a starting point for a critical engagement with and a materialist understanding of how society is organized. She is the co-coordinator of the Inside Film Project and the principal editor of the Journal of Class and Culture. She has co-directed with Mike Wayne three films, Listen to Venezuela, Condition of the Working Class, and their latest film, The Acting Class, which is about the lack of working class actors. I welcome Deirdre O'Neill to Savage Minds. I wanted to welcome you to the show, and I'd like to kick off with you and me and our action. Several years ago, when we co-authored an open letter to the British Film Institute in response to their summit entitled Woman with a Movie Camera, hosting and platforming and centering none other than a non-woman and non-filmmaker, Monroe Bergdorf. Mm -hmm. And in our letter that we wrote, which received almost 20,000 signatories in a very little time. I was quite impressed by that. Yeah, Uh, no, absolutely. We wrote some basic facts. I'm just going to read from our letter. Why not? Research conducted by the University of Southampton in 2016 found that women are underrepresented across all key production roles, comprising only 13% of directors, 20% of screenwriters, 27% of producers, 18% of executive producers, 17% of editors, and 7% of all cinematographers. It is therefore imperative that women not only gain access to the dominant filmmaking institutions, but they are also front and center when discussions about our struggles and lack of presence within this male-dominated industry are tabled. So then we said, considering the uphill struggle of women in the film industry, that we maintain that this symposium should involve developing an understanding of how cultural institutions such as the film industry, including the BFI, replicate existing oppressive and exploitative structures. As a male, Monroe Bergdorf cannot possibly understand these issues because he has not experienced them. More to the point, aside from being male, Bergdorf does not even work in the film industry. There we were writing one of the most water is wet type of open letters. We got a lot of signatures, as I mentioned, but we were stonewalled by the higher ups of the BFI, if you recall, when it came down to their making a meeting to meet with us in person. That's right. We were successful in in the sense that Bergdorf then um, didn't didn't actually, I mean, he, he, he didn't go in the end, did he? Well, it wasn't because of us, allegedly, if you recall. It was his own choice to withdraw because of other commitments or something like that. But I think we all know that it was because of the pressure. And I think not only was there that letter, but uh, there were other women who were actually outside the BFI protesting against it as well. So I think the combination of that, I think, you know, and like you say, 20,000 signatures uh, when we put the letter online. I think the BFI knew they did. They really didn't want him there after that. Um, and if you remember, it was in the Guardian as well. Um, there was a little write up about it. So I think, yeah, I mean, he withdrew from it. And I think, yes, he could say that he had other other reasons. But I think we know that's why. 
I mean, I'm, and that's I think is is really great. I mean, I, the, the problem is, is that kind of pressure doesn't seem to be working anymore. I was surprised that anything worked. I mean, obviously, I think it was a smokescreen to to use the other commitments as a way of jumping out of it. It reminds me of Kathy Griffin, whenever she refers to stars who get plastic surgery on their face, that they're having dental work. So it was sort <laughs> of the, the dental work excuse, but it, it was more sad to me. Well, two things. I think it would have been great for the BFI to say, we got it wrong. We're trying to mm-hmm. people and we should have reflected on this more, which they didn't. And if you recall the head of the BFI, she was really, I mean, her emails to us, we're condescending. And I yeah. think they, the, the idea that how dare we not respect a man? I mean, we're coming back to this once again, where there's a class issue within a lot of the narratives that we were addressing, uh, having a man, having a non-filmmaker present at something that was supposed to be for female filmmakers. I mean, I can't even believe I'm having to say female, but there we are. And and we were basically accused of being not nice. Now, this is typical Pashurati code for shut up because we've got mm. this because at the end of the day, who are the filmmakers who will, even if they are female, have access to the funds that most mm. female filmmakers will not. They will be the lower class, lower middle class, working class filmmakers. Mm. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Also, I mean, like you say, he wasn't even a filmmaker. He was the subject of a documentary about having um, surgery to make himself look like a woman. Um, And that, you know, that in itself, like you say, there are class issues here because, you know, if you go to the BFI and, um, you know, or any of the funding bodies and try to get money to make a film about working class people, you're never going to get it. Um, it just it just doesn't happen. Um, so, you know, I think absolutely this is about kind of, you know, men trying to say that they're women. But it's also about, um, you know, it's about uh, power relationships and who has the power. And, you know, Norma Bergdorf is a privately educated upper middle class man. <laughs> so actually, you know, the BFI can, you know, pay lip service to diversity as much as it likes, but actually it's still funding and, and putting forward the, exactly the same kind of people that it's always funded and put forward, which is, you know, privately educated middle class men. Um, right. But of course, we'll hear from people saying, oh, but he's a black man or she's a black trans woman. Um, the fact that the Guardian piece on our letter failed to mention this got at me a bit the fact that he's not an underprivileged British man and then and it also seamlessly elided the other critiques that you mentioned earlier that other women outside of our letter were pushing back on and it failed to mention that and I think also I mean I mean I don't really want to get into the race issue but I I you know he is obviously lightening his skin as well so you know that's a whole other can of worms so um and I just, and then that what that actually brings us down to is identity politics. And we can break it down as much as we like into all different kinds of identities. But, you know, what we are talking about, like I say, is kind of class relationships, uh, well, power relationships. Um, and so, and it seems to me that what's happened around the whole trans thing is that there's, there's no need anymore to rely on, you know, what we could call a kind of the foundations of knowledge. 
You know, that, that there are universal rational justifications for living our lives in certain ways. Like there's universal rational justifications for having separate facilities for women and separate facilities for men because there are biological differences that mean they are necessary. That's a foundational truth. Um, but I think what's happened is that we now have a kind of resource control and I mean resource not just economically but culturally and in terms of, like in terms of the media um, and, and the kind of organizations that control those resources are not they do not have kind of working class people in them those power relationships are incredibly distorted and so we have this kind of rise of identity politics and I'm, I mean I'm not sure I even like that expression but I think the problem is that what doesn't get talked about when we talk about identity politics is class is not an identity. And we, it's really, really important that we realize class is not an identity, class is a relationship. And it's a relationship to, you know, the institutions, the forces of production, you know? I mean, I think a lot of these problems have arisen because of the collapse of Marxism, because we do not have an analytical framework in which to make sense of a lot of what's going on. And so we get the rise of, for want of a better word, identity politics, but <clears throat> kind of, you know, small pressure groups who are all fighting for attention and all fighting for the crumbs from the table. But of course, what gets left out of that is, is class and class don't have, they don't even have the access to fight for these rights. And we've seen that, you know, over the last 40 years of neoliberalism, the rolling back of the welfare state, you know, the confidence of the working class that came after, you know, the Second World War. And we had education, we had council housing, we had big industries, we had strong trade unions. And that gave the working class a confidence, which they no longer had. And then whenever they try to kind of, you know, reinsert themselves, if you like, into the public sphere, um, they just get called stupid, racist, bigot. And, you know, we can see that in what's happening. I think, you know, and I think we need to think about class very much when we think about this whole transgender movement, because for me, it seems very much rooted in kind of middle-class concerns around identity that we've seen, you know, grow exponentially over the last kind of 20 years or so. Um, and I do think... I'm ranting now, but I do think it's really important that we see that, you know, and it was quite interesting. There was some research done, I think, a couple of months ago by Sam Friedman. I don't know if you at the LSE about how many middle class people call themselves working class. And I find that really, really, it, it really interesting. Um, and I think middle class people you know, at, at some level, realise that they're incredibly privileged and it's been very easy for them, but they actually don't want to admit that, um, particularly those who see themselves as politically active. So I think what what the whole trans ideology has done for them is given them an oppression, if you like, that they can they can link themselves to without happen to look at class because again you go back it's the really and they are very complicit in what has happened to the working class over the last 40 30 40 years of neoliberalism it's it's i i used to be a cleaner before i went to university i used to be a cleaner and i used to clean the houses of the middle classes 
And I would never call myself a feminist because all these women who I cleaned houses for called themselves feminists. It's really, again, it's really interesting because their feminism meant um, they wanted childcare that they could afford so they could go to work and compete with middle-class men on their own terms. Their feminism didn't include me, who was a single parent on a council estate, was claiming benefits and working, cleaning for them, cash in hand, or my mum, who worked in the betting shop. We were not included in that. We never, you know, and they used to, I used to listen to them having conversations about how they had to have cleaners so that, you know, they didn't want to do all the housework and it would fall to them, you know. That, that was their idea of equality, building their careers on the backs of working class women. And I think in a long way around, what I'm saying is I think this trans ideology is being built on the back of working class people. It's a way of excluding class from the conversation. And it's not middle class women who are gonna be put in prison with men who say they are women. It is not middle class women who are got not got, you know need to access hostels and refuges because you know they will have the money to make different or an alternative arrangements for themselves. You know the same as it's not middle class women who will you know have to sell their bodies down the back of an alley. So, you know I know my friend knows a kid who she's fourteen. She had ten quid blowjobs to top up her phone. I, you know, that's not going to be the children of the middle classes. So I really do think that we have to kind of reclaim this argument and see it again as another kind. And I know it is a power struggle, but to put it within the framework of a class analysis and what's happening to working class people in this country. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant. <laughs> no, but it's, it's a relevant rant because we're seeing within the spheres of social activism amongst feminists that there has been a division along the lines of class and it's been trenchant. I think you've noticed it over the past mm. three years, roughly, where there are certain people entering the gender debate and because of their class are immediately elevated within the movement, given book contracts, given access to major media. Meanwhile, working class women's voices are unheard, literally mm -hmm. unheard. Mm -hmm. And I find that really shocking, especially in a country like the UK, where you have such a strong tradition of working class values, labor unions, the, the voices of the people have been historically, and I'm speaking you know, more pre-Thatcher, front and center in activating social democracy, as it might be called. And now, I mean, obviously Thatcher did a job on housing. Let's just begin there. I mean, the right to buy scheme was a very clever political tactic for her to have votes by mm -hmm. people who align themselves formally or, or superficially on the left. And the removal of so much housing uh, public housing from the, the country set up the haves and have nots in a way that again divided the working class who could afford to buy their flat, who could not, or the many people a generation, two generations later, who are left with unaffordable housing in London. So, mm -hmm. and you know, the right to buy scheme has been well discussed, but this has an overflow to it where you have now again, back to feminists, you've got so many people who are speaking out about this, 
idiocy of gender ideology taking over class discussions mm. but we're not seeing all the feminists coming out in in favor of class discussions even regarding feminism because if we want to solve the problems that women and girls face around the world that begins and ends with material reality mm, absolutely how yeah. has it been that the the middle-class to bourgeois feminists have been able to command so much power, even in the media representation of their voices? Well, I think, I mean, I, you just said it's shocking, but for me, as a working class woman, it isn't shocking. It isn't. It is the norm. And yes, historically, there's been a kind of tradition of working class voices in the public sphere and of course working class women have always played part in that even though maybe their part hasn't been as recognized um as you know working class men you know that kind of cliche of the industrial working class up north you know was just very male dominated you know it's you know a lot of that was built around that kind of notion of the body of the of, of the working class man you know and it was a heroic body it built you know it built ships in the shipyards and it mined coal in the mine in the coal fields you know it was a heroic working class body which has now as we know been incredibly kind of degraded and kind of constructed in a very negative way so the thing is if it and, and it goes back to what I was saying to you earlier, you know, my experience of kind of middle class feminists when I was cleaning their houses. I've ne I don't call myself a feminist for those very reasons, because I know that feminism usually means the kind of wants and needs and desires of middle class women, you know, um, and, you know, middle class women or middle-class feminists you know they want a place on the on the board of directors but you know that's as far as their aspiration goes they don't ask why we have boards of directors in the first place which is what I'm interested in you know as a working class woman I gave you know they, they, these hierarchies and this careerism is really a, a, you know it, it, I, I kind of reject that as a as the as the basis of any political movement, um, that you know it would be about status and careers. So I'm not shocked. This gets to what Adolf Reed calls the managerial class, which is why, and he critiques this across BLM. And these issues are very interrelated. While no one would make the argument that sexism or racism never occurs. One would have to also make the argument that both occur across class lines. Hence, the elision of class is notable in over the past year and what's happened in the US precisely and across the English speaking world in terms of feminist politics around gender ideology. So we're seeing this panorama of politics that unfolds along identity, be it race or feminism, or being biological female. And at the same time, there's such little lip service paid to the preoccupations of those people, as you rightfully note earlier, who will be in women's prisons, those who will be excluded from festivals or sporting events. And this raises a lot of questions along the lines of class all over, because if we can't speak about class, if feminists refuse to speak about class, if Black Lives Matter participants or organizers, who are quite well off, by the way, refuse to address class, then we're just 
paying people donating to BLM last year were paying lip service to white guilt or whatever guilt. And this got got recycled into great budgets, but so far we've seen nothing come of it, you see. So when we're talking about the way that women behind the camera are underrepresented in Britain, or who is represented before the camera, in front of the camera, we also get to class. And you take this issue up in the acting class where you give a trenchant critique of class within British filmmaking, and you note how there is an acting class dominated by those afforded the luxury of RADA backgrounds. The Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, those people with those backgrounds have access to the film and television industry in Britain like no one else. At the same time, Mm -hmm. if I might paraphrase, Benedict Cumberbatch, who has appeared on American media and lamented the state of things in the UK, citing that because of class, he is pushed aside. He has the (laughs) counter argument, okay? Thing it's not just him. There's that other actor, he's Scottish Mm, actor mm. in Grey's Anatomy. He said the same thing, that they're locked out of film and TV in the UK because they Mm. they maintain that, I, I would actually read it further, they maintain because they're posh, they don't get jobs, but I'd say it might go down towards that there's maybe just too many actors and the US industry has far more jobs. So how do you address this? If you could give a overview of what you look at. It's quite interesting to to think about, you know, the kind of films that get made in in this country, the kind of people who get to make films. Um, You know, my husband, it was quite interesting. He did, um, I I don't know if you get it, where there's a chat show called The Graham Norton Show. I love Graham Um, Norton. He's, he's a genius. Well, <laughs> my husband did a, a, a kind of breakdown of the English actors that are, appear on his show. And I think over over a period of a couple of months or something, but I don't remember the exact, but the, the, the it was something like 60% of the uh, British actors that appeared on his show have been privately educated. Um, and if you, you know, there are very few English actors. There are, obviously, there are a few, but, you know, most English actors come from very, very privileged backgrounds because acting is a really difficult, um, you know, it's a really difficult, as you say, profession to break into anyway because of the competition. But also you need to be in London. So you need to be able to afford rents in London. You need to be able to go to auditions. You need the financial support that comes from having wealthy parents. Or if you're not in London, you need to be able to have the, you know, the very expensive um, train tickets to get to London. Uh, So that excludes working class people from the start or when we were making the film some of the people we spoke to is called the leaky pipe syndrome they get in but it's very difficult to stay in so you know they get older they get mortgage they get kids they just drop out so you know that means that you know it's like most professions are dominated by the upper and the middle classes which means the kind of stories we tell ourselves and it is really important that cultures tell each other stories. That's how we learn. That's how we learn about other people. But the stories we tell each other are just filtered through a very narrow perspective. 
And so you have to ask yourself then about the importance of representation, because it's not just the people who was kind of, you know, starring in the films or on the theatre, in theatre stage, but it's the people who are writing the stories and the people who are directing the stories, and most of them come from middle class backgrounds. So their representations of working class people tend to be based on other media representations of working class people, because they very rarely know working class people. And that's a massive problem. Um, and, you know, we can see that in the negative, you know, the, the, either the romanticising of working class people or the neg negative representations of working class people. And of course, that, you know, that then feeds into other kind of sites of representation like the media. And our media is, again, dominated by people from incredibly privileged backgrounds. And when I say privileged, I mean wealthy backgrounds, you know, people who can, you know, go to a really good school or a private school and then go to a Russell Group University, come out and get an internship. That's another way that they get on. Um, and then get a nice job because daddy knows someone somewhere. And then, you know, then they get to talk about the working class with no knowledge of working class life. They've never lived on a council estate. They've never known what it's like to go hungry. Never known what it's like to do cash in hand jobs and be frightened that you'll be found out by the social security and be arrested or prosecuted. Yeah, they've never, never suffered any of these things. And yet they get to talk about our lives. And so they, 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 and then the kind of flip side of that was the work that we did in prisons. Well, we, 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 uh, we, you know, I mean, it's become impossible now, but a few years back, we were able to get into um, uh, one of the London prisons and we ran a filmmaking project with some of the guys in there who made the most wonderful films, <laughs> absolute, you know, representing their lives as they saw it. So pretty unmediated actually they weren't filtered through the perspective of middle class people these were working mainly black guys because in london the prisons are dominated by young black working class men and interestingly enough when we had the, the kind of pre-discussions before we started making the film most of these young black men saw their 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 main source of their oppression was their class they actually didn't see that the main source was race. And they thought of it in terms, they knew because they were poor, that if they had lived in Kensington or somewhere, they would have, you know, they probably wouldn't, enough chances are they wouldn't be in prison. Um, and so, you know, if you give working class people, and this is, I, I think this is so important, if you give working class people access to the means of cultural production, you will get a very different story. You, we will start to tell other kinds of stories. But as I say, what's happened now um, is the kind of, we have a kind of systemic and institutionalized representation, a negative representation of the working class that perpetuate oppression, that perpetuate the kind of exclusion of working class people. Um, so, you know, you can get on your platform and talk about working class people, but unless you get off your platform and let working class people on it, then you are perpetuating the oppression that working class people, and we can see it, you know, we've had 30 years of middle class, and I, another expression I don't like, but I'm going to use social justice warriors, I think you know what I mean, so we can see the, the alternative media, um, are, for instance, and we've, you know, we've had years, and things are getting worse, they're not getting better. <laughs> They're getting worse because these people are building their careers off the back 
of working class oppression. I mean, it's it's just and then you know, I, and you you mentioned it earlier on, but you know this whole idea of um, white privilege, and I I you know it makes me very angry. I think of my parents. You know, my dad was sixteen when he came to this country from Belfast. He was a Catholic, and he couldn't get a job because he had a Catholic name. So he came here at sixteen to work on a building site to send money back to his widowed mother. Sixteen, and then you know he 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 lived in London in the fifties at a time when they used to have uh, notices in the window saying no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. Um, you know, and, and my mum, my mum left school at 14 to work in a factory um, and they lost a child because they lived in a very, very damp two bedroom flat with their other two children. They lost a child uh, from pneumonia. So when people say white privilege, I would really like them to explain in what sense were my parents privileged. They both died young. <laughs> um you know, they had incredibly hard, difficult lives. My dad worked two jobs most of his life. Um, so I, you know, I, and it's, it's it, and we see this actually, again, we see this reformulated with the trans ideology, this idea that somehow because you um, are born, you have cis privilege. What the fuck is cis privilege? I mean, what the, f it's a made up word anyway. It doesn't apply to women. We are not a subset. Uh, we are women. Um, and in what way, you know, are working class women privileged? I, I just, I, well, yes, I get lost for words. <laughs> Your film, The Acting Class, talks about social stratification within the industry, which, it really struck me when you spoke to people like Christopher Eccleston and Maxine Peake, and you had many voices within the film that connect the privilege of independent wealth, or as you mentioned, not only independent wealth, but how people can afford to live in London. And these are issues even outside the film industry. The burgeoning field of internships to get a job in London is a nightmare to maneuver when you've just finished the university and you are supposed to work for up to two years for nothing. So mm. the government at one point was forced to rename that as volunteerships, but now volunteerships go on the CV in order to get a job and who can afford that? So we have a whole class of work that is actually protected by one's ability to live in London even if you wait tables, it's not going to be enough to pay rent in London while you have the time to run off to, if you're an actor, to rehearsals or to even screen tests or whatnot. And if you're a writer, who gets invited to the BBC's writer's rooms? I know people who have been in these writer's rooms and they're not coming from the working class. Again, I'm not saying that middle class and posh people don't have incredible talent they do. It's who has the access to have that talent highlighted. Mm -hmm. So it's a no brainer that when the BFI received our open letter, you know, the idea that somehow we were supposed to be paying lip service to a man. I think you remember the tweets in response to our open letter were largely favorable, but there were a few people who said, but Monroe Bergdorf is a, is a black up and coming mm -hmm. filmmaker. And we had to respond to that because again, he's not a filmmaker and he's 
a very middle class, upper middle class black man. So this idea of cisness permeates even the job sector where you are, you are cis <laughs> privileged by virtue of these very bizarre categories of gender mm. that we're supposed to somehow fall into, but class goes out the window. So, I mean, it was very easy to see last summer in the US with the, the riots around and the protests around Black Lives Matter, not only the police having killed someone and the three assisting, helping in the killing, I should add, who two of them were not black, but you know that escaped the masses, that maybe this is an issue of police power yeah, over exactly. race, but let's just you know not stop there. Um, we saw how so much of the rhetoric around race completely obscured any discussion of class, uh, the rate mm. of, of being jailed for black men over idiocies. I mean, things that even this current U.S. president has brought into being, higher rates of imprisonment because of the way that drug laws were framed in the U.S. historically, so that Black men would go to jail for a very small amount of possession or yeah. attempt to, and the attempt to sell was never a provable thing in the court system. Just having a certain amount meant that you must be selling. This was the logic at the time, and especially during Reagan and the first Bush era. So, we see that class is something that it seems that neither BLM nor the posh feminists, because it's important that we note that feminism has been taken over by the women, like the ones whose houses you've cleaned, the women who are speaking out today largely on this issue, who are getting the media attention, mind you, are of a certain class that there's no permeation of the narrative to include working class voices. So it becomes, a struggle within a struggle. How do actors or how do lower class filmmakers coming from one of the poorest parts of the country get work when getting that work is dependent upon her or his being able to afford London? But they, I mean, the, 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 the short answer is they don't, they don't get the work. I mean, that's the thing, you know, the greatest writer that ever lived is probably driving a bus somewhere at the moment. I mean, they don't, they don't get them. It's just impossible. It's a closed shop. We watched a programme on the BBC the other night and it was written by posh people. It was directed by posh people. It starred posh people. It was about posh people. And it's like, it's a closed shop. You know, you talk about trade unions and you know, the old trade union closed shop. But, you know, the culture industries in this country and yes, and in America, you know, probably, you know, most Western democracies, it, it's incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to get into the industry if you're from a working class background. It's not, you know, it's just not possible. So, I mean, I think, you know, and again, I think that's one of the places that we have to start. It's not about, you know, how do they how do they get they, they're not getting in they can't get in it's absolutely impossible for them to get in if you're a poor working class kid from an ex-mining village you've got nothing <laughs> and you know the education system in this country it, it, it you know it's the private schools are a kind of channel for all the professions i mean you know again our film you know we went to eton and, um, you know, Eton has purpose-built theatres. 
It has a, you know, two purpose. It has an in-house writer. It has an in-house director. The boys put on shows. People come down from London to, to see the shows that the boys put on. I mean, you know, we've got inner city schools where they haven't even got kind of, you know, clean working toilets. I mean, it's absolutely incredible that, you know, we even think, oh, what, what can we do to make sure more working class people get in? Well, it's, like, it's, it's systemic. It, it, you've got to change the system because and you've got to start putting working class people in situations where their voices are heard. Because, like I say, the, the short, they're not getting in. They can't afford it. So it, they, this is where the complexities are. This is the massive problem. That, and all the things that you talked about earlier on, you know, like, obviously, it's housing, it's internships, it's schooling, it's education, all of those things. We need to, you can't just say, oh, how are we going to get working class kids in? Because every single one of those institutions is anti-working class. I mean, that you know, the class prejudice in this country is absolutely off the scale. And it's the prejudice that we don't talk about. I mean, Brexit showed it. Brexit exposed it. And it's still not talked about as class. You know, there's all these euphemisms, you know. So, um, you know, they can talk about the uneducated, knuckle draggers, stupid. Yeah, the people are stupid. They've been duped. They, I... You know, basically, it's, it just shows how much the working class are despised, how they're not listened to. Um, and then, you know, I so it's not, you know, they're not getting in because they are kept out on purpose. These are strategies. You, you keep, you know, even the university system in this country now is a two-tier system. We have the post-92 universities where the working class kids go, and we have the Russell Group. And then the Russell Group kids go into the professions and they go into the decision-making jobs. And then, you know, the, the kids in the post-92, they just go out and do what they would have done if they didn't go to university, which is go into the service sector, um, you know, or some kind of low-paid, <clears throat> I don't know, civil service job or something. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Well, I wanted to hit out at a film that received a lot of attention this past month called Nomadland. I'm going to read you a review of it, a, a little blip. It's impressive. Listen to this. Quote, Groupthink reviewers have been showering Nomadland with awards, confusing it with art because they share Zhao's perspective. It's a class phenomenon. While Varda worked in the French New Wave tradition that refreshed the cinematic depiction of human experience, Zhao's method is patronizing. Her view of a recalcitrant off-the-grid lifestyle suits the media elites who, being distanced from hard work, are aghast at the evidence of individual anti-bourgeois nonconformist choice, end quote. Now this was making, at the beginning of this essay, they make a comparison to Agnes Varda's 1985 Vagabond. Now, what's interesting is what I just read comes from, sit down for this one, it's out of the National Review. I've been doing a WTAF over my shoulder look over the past couple of years to see right-wing publications 
make better class analysis than the woke pseudo left, fake left publications out there. And you had also shared a similar article making a very trenchant critique of this film. I wanted to get to Nomadland to look at how class is once again fed to Western audiences in the same way that you earlier described the very elision of class in narratives because the very people creating screenplays are those who have zero idea about what class is mm. for the majority of the world. Mm. I mean, it's a terrible film. I absolutely hated it right from the beginning. I mean, I think, it, 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 and again, yeah, I mean, it's about filtering it through that kind of perspective of identity politics where being homeless and living in a van is a lifestyle choice. She's offered twice, she's offered the opportunity to, you know, she doesn't have to live in that van. She chooses to live in a van and go from place to place, you know, and Amazon come off very easily as well. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so there was obviously some kind of deal made with the, with Amazon that they weren't shown in too negative a light, you know. Um, I think, you know, and again, so what we have is a confirmation of, you know, the, the, the identity politics of the middle classes where, you know, oh, it's terrible. She lost her job and she lost her husband. But hey, look at this lifestyle she's chosen to live where they all meet up around campfires and sing, you know, maybe she gets the opportunity to have a shag and move in with this guy, but she would rather be an independent woman. So let's have a shot of her looking across the beautiful landscape because, you know, she's really feisty. I mean, it's absolutely obscene, that film, but it makes sense that it was lauded and it makes sense that, that it won an Oscar, you know? Um, <clears throat> and I think Frances McDormand is a great actor, but she's built her star image, if you like, around being a feisty woman who doesn't care about cosmetic surgery and makeup and things like that. You know, it fits quite nicely into her star image as well. Um, so I just think that, you know, as a, yeah, as I said, and you just kind of say, you know, it's filtered to the perspective of a very rich woman who gets to make films about a, lot, a, a kind of life that she will never, ever have to live. And in such a way that it salves the conscience of the people whose lifestyles are making that happen, you know? That, you know, the, the, the fact that there are so many people in America in their 60s and 70s living, <clears throat> excuse me, living in freaking, freaking camper vans, because there's no housing, there's no jobs, there's no Medicare, there's no social security. Why wasn't that? But of course that film would never have got the plaudits it got and it would never have won an Oscar if it actually dealt with those kind of issues. And that's the, you know, you have to see the kind of films, you know, social realism in this country, and we used to have that kind of tradition of social realism going back to the 1960s and 1970s. And you can make some complaints about it, you know, and talk about how male-dominated it was. But it actually did engage with the social conditions of the working class and kind of expose those conditions. But, you know, now social realism has really, you know, we don't really have that social realist condition. I mean, if you go back to the you can kind of start to think about it, I think, with films like Billy Elliot, for instance, <clears throat> which is a vile film. 
you know, it's a film about um, a young working class boy who hates being working class, who's being held back by his working classness. You know, and if he can just escape his mining village and his family and his tradition and his history, he'll be a ballet dancer. Um, you know, and then when his dad goes to London, he'll be in awe of the tube stations. I mean, it's an absolutely terrible film where, you know, working class is something you need to escape from. Not the conditions, not the material conditions that make it difficult for you to stay in your, you know, because everything's been decimated, but you have to leave your class because your class is not something to be proud of, not something to celebrate. It's 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 part of the history of this country. It's no longer relevant, <clears throat> and that's you know we've lost that kind of social realism that really really. Um, I mean, I suppose the only person doing it now to a great uh, is Ken Loach, um, who has always been more popular in Europe than he has been in this country anyway. The way Americans approach British cinema, well. For years, it came through the Oscar filter. Americans would see the films that won the Oscar. So Mike Lee and Ken Loach got their fair share of spectatorship. Mostly Mike Lee did because of having won certain prizes. Mm -hmm. Now, when you look at, again, Ken Loach is widely revered all over Europe as the working class filmmaker showing the reality that mm -hmm. no one else will show. What changed in the history of British filmmaking that these voices are practically invisible? Well, I think, you know, you have to link it to the kind of economic and political and cultural changes that have taken place in England over the last 40 years. Um, and as I said earlier on, if you kind of go back and look at representations of the working class, the kind of post-war representations of working class, particularly working class men, I mean, what you have is a, a kind of celebration of working class men because, you know, after the Second World War, we had a country that needed to be rebuilt. Um, so, you know, it, it was the steel industry and the mining industry and the building industry that was rebuilt in England. Um, you know, and there was, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of building going on. I mean, my dad worked on building sites in London. I remember, you know, excuse me, in the 60s and 70s, you know, that that that, that was his job. He, he worked for the council and they were building flats for working class people. So there was a real economic need for working class people. Um, and I kind of, you know, they fed into that notion of, of rebuilding, both kind of symbolically and economically. But as you point, you know, after Thatcher, that really starts to change. And we have the kind of introduction of, you know, neoliberalism here in 79 in the States in 81 with the, the, the <clears throat> uh, with Reagan. And so we, but we then, we have a move away from the working class as something to be celebrated. And we have a kind of restructuring of the working class or a reconstruction of the working class you know, as a kind of, a drag as something that's holding the country back yeah they're kind of they become a kind of aberration um or something you can just put in a little box named history and forget about so then you see a shift from the kind of you know the brave heroic working class to this working class who are welfare dependent who are feral 
who are a drag on this, you know, because what Thatcher wants to do is she wants to get rid of all the institutions that have supported the working class, you know, and the working class after, you know, there was a lot of working class radicalism after 1945. And that was kind of bought off, if you like, with the welfare state. So, you know, you gave the working class decent homes. You know, my own grandmother, she lived in a, in a flat, kind of in, a, in an old Victorian house. She had the bottom of it with an outside toilet until she was 79 years old. And then she was moved on to um, a council estate, which they've now pulled down so they can build homes for the, um, <clears throat> you know, the young professionals. But so you get that kind of shift. There's no need for the working class anymore. They, you want to roll back the welfare state. You want to sell off the council housing. Um, you know, you want to privatise the health service. You want to put your education services in the hands of um, academies, you know, businesses who can run. So, you know, what you have to do then is reconstruct the working class as uh, in an incredibly negative way. And then, of course, that feeds into the way in which they're represented in the media, whether that media is, you know, um, the news, whether it's reality TV shows um, or if it's social realist films. We had this shift in the representation of the working class, which means, as I said, they go from being like, I think someone else said, they go from being the sort of the earth to being the scum of the earth. And then you have the plethora of films that are about the working class making it. As you mentioned, <clears throat> yeah. Jerry Elliott, in the US, there's very little working class concern at all but if you think to working girl it was all about melanie griffith mm. getting out of staten island that was mm. it when she made it to manhattan she made it right yeah that's an interesting film i remember talking to someone about the final shot of that film i think the final shot of that film has a real kick because i don't think she makes it because if you remember it and it's a long time since i've seen that film but it's always stuck with me that final shot she goes into her office, she's made it, she's got her own office and she goes in and she sits down. And then the final shot is a shot of the outside of the office building. And as the camera pulls away, she's just one little square in a whole load of other little squares. And I think there's a real kick to that final shot. I don't think she's so, I think the film's saying, look, she might think she's made it, but she's just another little drone. I think it's a, a really interesting film. There are grants for working class filmmakers, let's say. When I say, let's say, because of this. Film London, Scottish Screen, Northern Ireland Screen, Channel 4, UK Film Council, they offer grants. But those grants, as you know, when you read at a grant proposal, you have to allot how much money you need for anything that you're doing. And that generally will not cover housing. How is anyone who's just moved to London to go to film school, even a shorter program, so they can get right on it and live there? I mean, th that's the thing is there's all these grants, but if you can't even afford to live near the center of where this money is coming from, then you can't get on the, the chain. I mean, I think it also it depends about what you want. I mean, do you want to be a massive big name film actor or film director or you know do, do you want something a little bit more politically committed a bit more low-key I mean the BFI do give kind of grants to kind of you know I don't know schools or quite but 
the thing about those kind of grants, and I'm not talking about the filmmaking grants now, I'm talking about grants, is they're always outreach projects. <laughs> it's like, you know, the working class or, you know, the, the, the underprivileged kids or the deprived kids, it's always an outreach project. It's always a tick bucket box exercise, you know? It's like difficult to reach group. And it's like, no, 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 no. We're not difficult to reach. We're here. But you don't include us. So then we become an outreach project where you can send some middle class people, you know, give us a bit of money and then, you know, we'll make a few films and then you'll just piss off and get on with the real business of funding the people that are already in the industry or, you know, whose dad knows someone. Um, so I think, you know, that that's one of the problems is the way that this kind of hierarchy of funding, the hierarchy of exhibition, the way in which kind of, you know, there is this very, very kind of like, as you might point out earlier on, this kind of manager, man, I can't say the word, managerialism, where, um, you know, we have to be seen to tick in certain boxes. So have we have we done some outreach work with kids in this area? Have we done some outreach kids uh, work with this group of underprivileged people? Um, you know, have we gone into an old people's homes to make them? You know, all of that, where it's it's just always on the periphery. It's always on the periphery. It's never centred. And the BFI is not about to centre working class people. It's not about to centre great big projects where working class people will be funded to live in London for six months, do a training course and make a film, which will then go into their biggest um, screen. That's not going to happen. And part of the reason it's not going to happen is because I suspect that a lot of people that go to the BFI wouldn't be interested so, you know, what we have here is a kind of really major problem. And we have to start from the bottom up. It's not going to work from the top down. It's not going to, you know, we can forget about the BFI because it's not going to work because that's top down. We have to start from the, the, the grassroots. We have to get into the institutions because it doesn't, you know, unless you're feeding the grass, it's going to die. So, but we have to go in from the bottom, from the people who want to make films, who've never been given the opportunity, who perhaps didn't do film. You know, there's only one um, example in this country that does film studies, um, only one. Um, and that's the Welsh example. Um, so, you know, it's, it's become a kind of luxury. And there's loads and loads of film courses online, but they're really, really expensive. Film studies is now about race and women and gay film. And we've broken down film into all these micro categories that working class seems to fall far afield of that. I think to one of the best American films on class of the 70s was Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep, which escapes most Americans because at the time he's gone on to make some Hollywood more stylized films, unfortunately, they were not his best. This is his best. And it's a brilliant piece about a man who lives in Watts, East Los Angeles in a slaughterhouse. And he must suspend his entire life emotionally to continue working at this job, which he finds repugnant so that he can support his family. Now, Charles Burnett is a black filmmaker, the film, has, has black characters in it. And yet when this film came out, it was regarded as a working class film, but today that language would be completely dismantled in favor of race. And I think the way that cinema studies and, and media studies have been 
woken, awoken, if I can say, it has meant that working class won't even be codified in terms of a language of interpretation, such that now it's about how many people of color, look at what happened with the Globe, Globe, uh, Golden Globes recently. We have to now tick box things in terms of identities rather than more interesting approaches such as a slaughterhouse worker, working class concerns in the US. Again, harking back to neorealism, which was dealing with the post-war era of let's say Italy or the UK and how a nation rebuilds itself with so many poor around. How are these people constructing themselves within their new life of post-war Britain? And so I, I do have concerns about the way that media has been caught in the throes of identity as well. Because this becomes, why does the BFI have no audience to see working class films? Well, it's a tautology. When you make your bread and butter from donations and want to give the people what they want, the same with the, the same critique that Matt Taibbi has been making about major media today. When you have clickbait driving the news and you see that people are more interested in fighting Democrats versus Republicans, you're gonna run more of those stories, true or not. You're not gonna cover the Capitol protests. You're gonna focus on the rioters who broke in. You're not gonna talk to people on the ground tens of thousands of them, mind you, who were peacefully protesting. You know, the, the lack of coverage of political events on the right is now verboten because that automatically means that you're a sympathizer of the KKK, Nazi Germany, et cetera, et cetera. So there's no nuance. If we, if we have no nuance, class is one of the most nuanced things to the middle class, I'm saying, not to the people of the lower class. They don't see class, you see. And because they don't have to. The BFI doesn't have to show them class because they did their class weekend thing, but they didn't, you know, the people who went were probably lower class. So they, I, I hope they got enlightened by that. But you see what I'm saying? This is the attitude is that we tick the right boxes and subscribers to the BFI probably miss that working class weekend, but it fills the right tick boxes so they can feel socially rejuvenated. And there's something to institutions like the British Film Institute that on the one hand can run working class weekend film seminar, let's say, and on the other hand, make one for women, throw a man in there who's not even a filmmaker and then call it a day. How can working class filmmakers, even if they had the luck to have a friend who had an empty flat in London that they could stay there and build up and work from there, this free rental space, let's say. How do you break it then into the likes of ITV, the BBC, et cetera, when all of the deals being made are from who you went to Eaton with? I mean, that's why I say, I think that we have to, if we want to build a movement of working class filmmakers. I think we have to forget about the BBC, the ITB, the BFI. I think, you know, these institutions, these, you know, we're not going to build, you can't build from the top. You have to build from the bottom. And so I think we have to go into the prisons. We have to go into the schools. We have to go into the council estates. Somehow we have to get, we have to get access. That's how we have to do it. It's really, really difficult. And like I say, there are gatekeepers and I, 
and, and you, you know, you talk about kind of teaching of film and, and, and I think, you know, universities in general, I think the problem, one of the big problems you have to realise is, of course, the, the, the academy, the university sector is, again, dominated by very middle class people. I mean, there's lots of hourly paid lecturers, but, you know, <laughs> who, who are very precarious, but, you know, the tenured professors and pe- these are very middle class people who have, you know, they might say they're not, but they're kind of reasonably well paid for what they do. Um, and so most of the theory that we read, most of the stuff that, you know, that is, is very middle class. You know, it is incredible. And obviously, you know, over the last kind of 30 years or so, Marxism has become, you know, at one point it was kind of taught in the universities, but it's not now. Um, and the students have been taught to be very suspicious of Marxism because they've been taught to be very suspicious of any foundational kind of universalizing text, no matter how scientific it is. Um, they, they, you know, they've been taught to, to, to distrust that kind of um, theory. Um, so I think, you know, you have to realize that, that, you know, universities themselves, what, what did Benjamin call them? They're bastions of protectionism. Yeah, and, they, and they, you know, they're being buffeted at the moment, particularly the post-92 ones, to a certain extent. Yeah, and the government in this country have just said they're going to cut the funding for creative subjects by 50%. So, you know, what's going to happen with the creative subjects is, you know, you know, as such as film studies, is it uh, even more so it's going to become something that middle class people do or people with money do rather than working class people. And that's why I say we've got to, I mean, at some point we've got to deal with the institutions, but to begin with, we've got to move away from these institutions because they are not going to help us. They are not going to make it okay for work. And we've got to, like I keep saying, we've got to build from the bottom up. What are some of the projects happening right now ongoing from the bottom up that you might offer as a resolution to the current crisis of working class filmmakers? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I know myself at the moment, I'm trying to get the funding to make a, a film about alternatives to prison because of, you know, the, the criminalization of the working class. Um, and I'm still waiting to find out whether I've got that funding. Um, I think, you know, as I'm not aware of any, like I say, I've been talking to some people and to trade unions quite recently and, you know, trying to persuade the trade unions to, to fund, or certain trade unions, to fund filmmaking projects so that we could go into um, working class areas or council estates or, you know, where working class people are and to start building a kind of a working class film culture. Um, whether that comes off or not, I don't know. And of course, the problem is, is, you know, that everyone's working full time and it's really difficult to find the time. Um, but let's let's see, because I think a lot of people would work voluntarily, um, which is fine. Um, but, you know, we need the funding to buy the cameras and the, and the, and the software and the laptops and to go in. And, and um, so I actually do That's that's all I know at the moment. I don't know. I mean, there are, you know, if you go onto Vimeo or, or, or onto YouTube, you know, there are a few independent and I mean, really independent, not 
you know, um, not people that get asked onto question time and good morning Britain, but, you know, working, trying to, um, to make films about, you know, what's happening in working class communities, both here and abroad. Um, but I just think that, you know, that whole kind of culture of, or working class film culture just just doesn't exist. We again, not only we've got to build it from the bottom up, we've got to build it from scratch. I think that kind of confidence that the working class had during the sixties and the seventies, I mean, that's really gone. And I think you know what we, and I think you know to a certain extent, you know, this idea of you know the, the consumer culture, for instance. I mean, it's it has destroyed working class class consciousness, and we have to, you know, this is what I'm saying. Whatever we do, we have to link it to a kind of political education for the working class, because we, you know, class exists and it's there. It's not the same as it was. It's reformulated itself, and it's kind of multi ethnic, and it's you know, and it's men and women. It's different religions. It's different races, but so class exists and we have to, what doesn't exist is that, that kind of class consciousness, that kind of idea that if we work as a class, we might be able to change things. You can't change the system unless you understand the system. And I think, and that's what brings me back to Mike, that you, we need a media education. And, you know, when I talk about kind of political education, I'm not talking about going in and, you know, let's have a look at the Russian Revolution and let's kind of read Marx and Rosa Luxemburg. You know, they're all, oh, that's fine. What I really mean when I talk about political education is the ability to engage critically with the media because we live in a media-saturated world. We are bombarded with media from the minute we get up to the minute we go to bed, you know, on our laptops, on our phones, we got TV, you know, streaming... There is so much media um, and we have to be able to engage with it. We have to be able to make sense of it. And we have to have not alternatives because that suggests the kind of the two things that can work in parallel. We have to have an oppositional media. What the moment we have is an alternative media. So we have, you know, I don't know, Navarra media, for instance, it gives you a slightly more left wing um, version of events than you would get in The Guardian. I'm not talking about that alternative because they they do they they jog along quite nicely together. I'm talking about an oppositional media, a media that says no, this is not right. No, this is not the way we do. That actually opposes what's going on and doesn't use it so that they can get a slot on Question Time or Good Morning Britain or the politics show or something. You know, um, so. I mean, I, it's a massive task. It's a massive task, but I do think that that's what we need. We need to link a media education to a political education with the working classes. We need it funded and we need it from the bottom up and not the top down. Because the top down will mean that it's middle class people going in and getting jobs. <laughs> getting jobs to teach working class people how to be better working class people. <laughs> you know, and I think we have to move away from that. You've addressed the issues of class within other cultures, such as Listen to Venezuela. Could you discuss that film and how that affected your vision as a filmmaker? You know, my dad was telling us about Palestine long before it became a kind of issue. I'm glad it's an issue, but, you know, we understood it as, as, as small children. We were brought up, you know, my dad 
Oh, my dad left school when he was a kid. He never went to school. He taught himself to read and write. I mean, he wasn't educated in a formal sense, but he was one of the most educated, intelligent people I ever knew. Um, and we were brought up, you know, with a kind of anti-colonialism framework, partly because he was from the north of Ireland, you know, an occupied country. And, you know, the Republicans in Ireland have always seen their links to the people of Palestine. So... And so partly it is because I understand the working class as international. And we were very, very interested when Chavez was elected. You know, as long as you weren't reading The Guardian, you could see that, you know, there was massive changes going on in the Venezuelan society that were really about, you know, the working class people. And so we got, we did get some funding. Well, my husband got some funding and we went there for a year to originally to make a, um, a film about the, the media that was the, all, all the kind of oppositional media that was cropping up. But actually it was such an amazing place to be. And it was such an amazing thing to be part of. You know, Chavez was alive then um, and you know, yeah, we, we, we would be sitting in um, Caracas reading The Guardian online, Rory Carroll, their Latin American correspondent, telling the most outright fecking shite about what was going on. And it had no, no kind of resemblance to what we were experiencing. Um, and it was, you know, it's just amazing. I mean, even if you didn't agree with Chavez, what was happening was worth looking at and analysing just to see if it was going to work. I mean, he had set up a university, which is where we were based, um, for the kids from the barrios. So the poor kids from the barrios who would never have had a chance to go to university and they were doing their degrees, not so that they could get a high paid job or loads of status, but so they could go back into the barrios and whatever their degree was, they would feed that back into their community. Um, he, you know, there were there were people in their 60s and their 70s walking around in, in really flash glasses because for the first time these people were getting access to opticians because they couldn't they couldn't do it before because they couldn't afford it. He's, that, that was all free. The dental treatment was free. There were, I mean, I got really ill when we were there. I got a urinary tract infection. Um, and it was really bad. I was really ill. And I just went to uh one of the um medical hubs that they'd set up. This one was in the university. I was seen by a Cuban doctor. I was treated. Uh, they, they did blood tests and urine samples. She told me what was wrong with me and she gave me the antibiotics all within a few hours for no payment at all. We weren't Venezuelan, but we just went there and that was it. Um, there were kind of, um, there were food, subsidized food, the university, I mean, this, there are different ways of doing things. The university used to provide a breakfast for all the students, all the staff, and people in the um, immediate area, used to provide a lunch, all free, and then a little snack in the evenings. All that was free, beautiful food. Um, my son was part of a karate club. He played baseball. We did Spanish lessons. Not that I can speak Spanish, but and everything was free. It was all funded by the government. Um, so, and I remember, uh, yeah, oh God. And I remember after chat, I mean, it was just an amazing experience. 
And there were kids from the barrios reading Gramsci, reading Marx, reading Benjamin. They were literally walking around with books. You got Gramsci on the front. I mean, you know, the, the expansion, it was, um, and the media was amazing. And I'm not saying that there weren't problems, there were problems. You know, there were two kind of economies going on in Venezuela at that time. They, you know, Chavez kind of left the rich alone to a certain degree. So, which meant that they could, you know, and then there was all this kind of socialism going on underneath that. But, you know, it left it open for what's happening now. Um, but I remember after Chavez died, and this is this is what I mean about the difference between an alternative and an oppositional media. I remember when Chavez died, I think Owen Jones was still working for the Independent, and the Independent in its um, in its kind of leader called Chavez a dictator, which is absolutely ridiculous because he got I think thirteen times while he was he was elected. Um, I mean, you know, he had all these like local elections, and uh, but he was a democratically elected president. There is no way. He was a dictator, whatever you thought of his politics. And I, on Twitter, I said to Owen Jones, are you going to call out the independent for um, calling him a dictator? And he said, oh, I can't. Uh, and then he's, one of his mates came on, another, another one of those kind of privately educated media people say, you can't expect him to criticise his um, employer. And I said, no, I do. <laughs> Actually, I do, because Owen Jones says he's a socialist and they are lying. Um, and Owen Jones called me pathologically unreasonable. Um, and then he asked me, he said, oh, and what have you ever done for Venezuela? And I thought, oh, well, actually, I lived there for a year and I made a film about the Bolivarian Revolution. Anyway, shut up then. But, um, and that's what I mean. This is kind of, so it was absolutely amazing it was you know and I it's a fantastic country the people are absolutely brilliant the food is wonderful and there was I mean obviously it's it's not like that now and obviously there were problems at the time um but there was a real attempt to create something very very different but you know Chavez died Maduro, uh, you know, the, the, this country in America, uh, um, you know, have made it oh, most of the Western democracies. They, I mean, obviously, they don't want to see Venezuela succeed. And I was talking to a friend in Venezuela um, about the elections here and she, you know, the, the kind of apathy and, the, and she's saying that that's what's happened to Chavismo in, in, in Venezuela now. Um, yeah, Maduro isn't as charismatic. The, the you know the, the the problems because of the having to fight kind of in the, the states and this country and all the problems that arise from that kind of isolation and that can constantly attacking them. You know, and the, the America recognizing I've forgotten his name, the guy that you know self proclaimed himself as a leader. But you know, it, it, it's taken its toll. But just for a very, very short time, there was the possibility of, of building something very different. Um, and I think that the really important thing is 
that you can't do it in isolation. I mean, we watched a film, actually, it was quite an interesting film. I can't remember the name of it, but it was actually about um, Chile. And when um, Pinochet was in Chile, or who was a dictator, um, after the death of Allende, and um, it was about Liverpool dockers who wouldn't send things to, to Chile because they were in solidarity with the Chilean workers. And it's like, that, see, that's really, really important. You have to see the work. It's called the international. You have to see the working class as international. That's really, really important. So I think going to Venezuela was, in some ways, it sounds really dramatic, but life-changing because there was these people who had never been included in their own society were now included in that society. And it was an amazing thing to witness. Um, and that, like I say, the possibility, you know, and I remember, you know, he he made it possible, Chavez made it possible for people who'd never, so that, that, that someone, one of the places we went to, there was a 95 year old man who was learning to read. He had not read all his life, you know, and there were women breastfeeding their babies. There were, you know, in university uh, classes. I mean, you know, it was just incredible. There were lots of cooperatives, you know, in the university grounds, there was this lovely little, um, <laughs> yeah, this woman used to call me Gringa, but this little woman's cooperative and they were all older women. So they were all kind of post 50, I think, but they, you know, they had set up this and they, they, they kind of produced the food in this little coffee shop, which was lovely, um, Arepas. But yeah, so it was, it was an amazing, and there was a recognition of, you know, different sexes, different classes, I mean, sorry, different ages, different, you know, indigenous people, one of the reasons that the, the mainstream press here and in particularly in Venezuela didn't like Chavez because he wasn't the right color. Um, yeah, he looked like the indigenous people of Venezuela. Um, so there was, it was a massive, you know, it was a really eye-opening experience in lots and lots of ways about the possibility and the potential if the political will is there.